0: How's everybody doing today, man? I am fired up. I had God change my message on me at the end of the week this week. So I got to pull my first real uh, Saturday night special. That's a term that pastors use for when you're not prepared. Uh, and you're up all night saturday so i was up till five o'clock this morning my first time as lead pastor where i pretty much did not get any sleep so i'm going on about 90 minutes worth of rest so if i collapse on the stage don't worry it's just me catching up on some sleep i'm okay Um, i'm gonna do my best not to let that happen today uh but i am excited to be with you i think that god has something to speak to you today and if you are excited about what we were supposed to be talking about today we're still going to hit that next week i promise you uh so don't worry we're not skipping out on that but I do think God's got something exciting to share with you today. And, man, I know I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I get so fired up to see a full church in the middle of July. Man, give yourselves a hand today, coming and being in the house of God. This is not supposed to happen. We're supposed to be down. Our numbers are supposed to be low. And I look out, and we almost got to put out some extra chairs, and that gets me fired up. So thank you. I don't know if you know this, but you coming to church is an encouragement you know hebrews says that we should not give up meeting together uh, as some are in the habit of doing but we should encourage one another just being together is an encouragement even if you don't like the person across the row. it's an encouragement that they're here man it's an encouragement that you get to work on your attitude praise god now but man thankfully i don't have ain't even any of y'all in the church that i don't like today so it's a good day uh so i ain't even got to worry about that praise god Sometimes pastors got to do with attitude, too. I'm not perfect. I promise But uh, I am fired up for real to be with you today Maybe it's deliriousness from not getting any sleep, but I think god's gonna show up today Uh, so hopefully you are in agreement with that. I got a question for you this morning I want you to wrestle with this I don't want this just to be kind of a rhetorical question that I put out there and then we move on with our message and we forget about it but have you ever thought about What does it mean? to be a Christian. Have you ever really wrestled with the question, what is this thing all about? Now, in a group this size, I'm sure there's probably a few of us here today that maybe would not consider ourselves Christians, that maybe wouldn't call ourselves that. And if you're here today and you're not at that place in life, we are so glad that you're here with us today. And we want this to be a safe, comfortable place for you to hear from God, for you to connect with him and maybe take a step forward in your walk with him. Uh, so if that is not you today, I'm not trying to exclude you. I'm not trying to ignore you, but I know most most of you, and I know most of you here would call yourself a Christian. Most of you here would wear that label. Most of you here would put that on your Facebook somewhere, that, yes, I'm a Christian. And if that's you today, I want to know, how do you answer that question? What does it mean to be a Christian? I think if I was to pass the microphone around today, and we were just to go around the room, and everyone was to answer that question, we'd probably get a wide variety Of adjectives we probably get a wide variety of stories of examples of definitions everyone in here would probably kind of have their own idea of what it means to be a Christian the truth is when we look at history a lot of things have been done under that title Christian some great things some awful things have been done the word Christianity has been used to justify all kinds of things ranging from slavery to the Holocaust, to all sorts of tragedies down through history. We've used Christianity to justify stealing land from Native Americans. We've used Christianity, some, when I say we, I don't li- really mean us necessarily. I mean people on planet Earth. Uh, but people have used Christianity to justify going to the funerals of American soldiers who died overseas and protesting at their funerals and saying that it is God's judgment against America for tolerating homosexuality. We've used the term Christian. To justify many things now don't get me wrong there's been some awesome things done under the banner of Christianity as well I and mean, there have been some incredible things in fact if you study history the leaders of the movement who abolished slavery both in Europe and here in the United States the key people the people who made it happen were all radical followers of Jesus Christ if you study the history of Uh, Of planet earth and you see where christianity has spread to down through the ages since jesus over the last two thousand years Inevitably when christianity comes to a culture the treatment of women goes up Incredibly women in christian cultures are far more liberated. They are far more respected They are treated with so much more dignity in a culture where christianity arrives christianity has done some incredible things Christians have spent billions of dollars to feed the poor To clothe the naked to dig wells to provide clean water Christians have done some awesome things But my question for you today is not what do christians do or what has been done in the name of christianity? My question for you today is what does it mean for you? To be a christian What does it mean to embrace that title in your life? I think if we were to go back in time 2,000 years and we were to go visit the very first churches that existed, the very first congregations that came together after Jesus Christ himself lived and died and rose again and ascended back into heaven to be with his father, if we were to ask those men and those women what it meant to be a Christian, they may have a few separate definitions, they may have a few different ideas, but I think one theme would pop up. In almost all of their answers. And I believe it's the true answer that we need to embrace for ourselves today when we ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And that is very simply this. A Christian is a disciple of Jesus Christ. A Christian is a disciple of Jesus. The New Testament was written in the language of Greek. And I am not a Greek scholar by any means, but I do have internet access. And I can look up a few things. And so I looked up the word disciple in Greek this week. And I may butcher the pronunciation. If you are a Greek scholar, come help me learn better. But I'm going to do my best with this. But the word used for disciple in Greek is methetes. should have that on the screen there. It's methetes. Uh, And basically what methetes means is that a disciple is a learner or an imitator. It actually comes from the word manthano. Manthano is the Greek word which means to learn. And so mathetes is a learner. It is an imitator. It is one who follows one who teaches. And there's an implication there of not just being a follower, but of being an imitator. Everybody say imitator. The Bible says that we are to be imitators of Christ. And essentially, that's what it means to be a disciple, to be an imitator. When I was a kid growing up, I grew up the first almost 15 years of my life in Seattle, Washington. And I am hopelessly cursed with a love affair for Seattle sports teams. They're all terrible, but it's in my blood. It's who I love. And so pretty much I'm destined to be uh, a loser as a fan for the rest of my life is what it feels like. Uh, But when I was eight years old, Uh, somebody got called up from the minors. A 19-year-old kid showed up for the Seattle Mariners, and his name was Ken Griffey, Jr., And if you're a baseball fan, you probably know how magical that name is. If you don't, you're going to have to humor me for a couple minutes. Because Ken Griffey Jr. was my first idol, my first hero. Ken Griffey Jr. was 19 years old when he got called up and he hit a double off of Dave Stewart on the first at bat that he ever had. His first home at bat, he hit a home run. He wore number 24. He played center field. His defense was incredible. Ken Griffey Jr. was, was, in my opinion, the greatest baseball player of his era. So as a Seattle Mariner fan, a fan of this team that literally had never had a winning season and didn't have a winning season even after acquiring Griffey for a few years, he he was kind of the one thing that we had to hold our hat on. And so I was not the only one by any means. There was a whole generation of kids in Seattle who just loved Ken Griffey Jr. Literally his rookie year, they came out with a Ken Griffey Jr. candy bar. And if you got a Ken Griffey Jr. candy bar, you froze it in your freezer because you thought it was going to be worth money one day. Not making that up. Didn't quite turn out that way. We got a little carried away. Uh, But I had like every piece of Ken Griffey Jr. memorabilia I could get my hands on. I had posters. I had hats. I had tons and tons and tons of baseball cards. I had everything I could get that had his name on it. And I still remember the very first time that I actually got a shirt that had Griffey on the back and had number 24, and I got to wear the name of Griffey. I remember working on Ken Griffey Jr.'s batting stance and on his swing. He was legendary for having the sweetest swing in baseball, and I was right-handed, and Jr. was lefty, and so I tried to learn to bat left-handed, and trust me, it did not work very well for me, Uh, but I was so dedicated to being as much like Ken Griffey Jr. as I could. I wore number 24 when I played baseball. I played center field. That was the only position I wanted to play. That was the position I aspired to because Ken Griffey. Junior, I was an imitator of Ken Griffey Jr. I probably was an idolater of Ken Griffey Jr. If I look back and, and be completely honest with you. But that's what it means to be an imitator. Is that everything that they do. Everything that they are about, every characteristic that you have, you aspire to have it in your life. And if you're not naturally that way, you're going to work at it. You're going to invest in it. You're going to study it. And you're going to do everything you can to be like that person. And so today, if you call yourself a Christian, what it means when you say that is that you are a disciple, you are a follower, you are an imitator of Jesus Christ. That you aspire to be like him. That you desire to be more like him every day. Now, Jesus, of course, famously had 12 specific disciples or 12 original disciples who were here with him on earth. And he chose these disciples very carefully. But it was absolutely his intention that you and I would be disciples of Jesus as well. In John chapter 8 verse 31 and 32 it says to the Jews who had believed him Jesus said this if you hold to my teaching you are really my disciples. He was not speaking to the 12. He was speaking to the others who had started to believe in him and he said if you hold to my teaching you're really my disciples. And then he made this most legendary statement. Then you will know the truth. And the truth Will Set you free now. We've probably all heard that statement that hey the truth will set you free But you know what that truth is in relation to that truth is in relation to listening to and following the teachings of jesus If we truly aspire to imitate him to be like him, that's when we will walk in truth And that's when we'll be set free over the last few weeks we've looked at a couple of stories of how did Jesus call, how did he recruit, how did he choose his disciples? A couple weeks ago, we looked at the story of Simon Peter and how Simon was on his boat, and he had gone out all night and was fishing and was a failure and had caught nothing, and how Jesus came and he took the platform of Simon's failure, of his disappointment, of his discouragement, and he used that to proclaim the reality of the kingdom to all who would hear. And then he said, let's go deep, Pete. And he pushed off and he took Peter out into the deep waters and he gave him the greatest catch that he had ever seen. He blessed Peter for following and obeying him. And that was then the question was presented that, hey, forget all this. Forget these fish. I want you to follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Last week, we looked at another story, one that's maybe not quite as well known, but we saw this guy, Philip, and it said that Jesus found Philip. And after Philip was found by Jesus, Philip went out and he found Nathaniel, and we learned that found people find people. And that he went out and found Nathaniel, and he recruited Nathaniel, and he said, Look, you gotta come meet this guy. He knows everything. He's the Messiah. He's the one that Moses wrote about and Nathaniel, a little skeptical, shows up to see Jesus. And as he's walking to him, Jesus starts to speak into the things inside of Nathaniel and he says, You are a Jew in whom there is nothing false and he's like how do you know me and jesus says i knew you i saw you while you were still under the fig tree before philip ever called you and we saw that jesus saw you before you ever saw jesus jesus loved you before you ever loved jesus and i think there's so much for us to gain by looking at these stories of the recruitment of jesus's disciples i think we can learn so much number one about jesus because that's the most important thing if we're going to imitate him we better know about him We better know who he was. We better know what he did. We better know what what he said. We better know how he responded to people. But number two, I think it teaches us a lot about discipleship, to see who these disciples were and how they responded when they were around Jesus. Ultimately, as we look at these stories, I think it teaches us a lot about what it means to be a Christian. So open your Bible to Mark chapter two. We're going to look at another one of these stories today. We're going to look at The calling of a man named Matthew, or in this passage and in Luke's recording of this story, he's actually referred to by his other name, which was Levi. And so we're going to see Matthew Levi be called by Jesus. We're going to continue to look at the face of Christ today, we're going to move down from his eyes, which we looked at last week, and we're going to move just a couple inches down to his mouth. And I think there's a lot of great things we could learn from the mouth of Jesus. We could learn something from the smile of Jesus. We could learn incredible, incredible things from the teachings of Jesus. We could spend literally weeks just looking at the things that Jesus said. But today, I want to look at something maybe a little bit different, maybe a little uh, odd, something that we've probably never considered before. I want to look at the appetite of jesus what was jesus's appetite what did jesus desire and we're going to learn a lot about him today mark chapter 2 starting in verse 13 it says once again jesus went out beside the lake the lake of course is the sea of galilee it is in northern israel in the region of galilee the region that jesus was from says a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them Jesus was always teaching, always pouring in, always investing, always giving of himself to everyone who was hungry. It says, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. So again, we see Jesus seeing. We see Jesus noticing. We see Jesus recognizing someone. And he sees Levi, son of Alpheus, sitting at the tax collector's booth because he was a tax collector. And Jesus says these words. He says, follow me. Everybody say, follow me. Follow me, me, Jesus told him. And then what happened? And Levi got up and followed him. Don't you love simple obedience? Parents, mom, dad, don't you love simple obedience? When you can tell your child something and they do it without you having to explain it. What a beautiful thing. Matthew, Levi, hears Jesus say these words, follow me. And he's just crazy enough just simple enough, just childlike enough in his faith that he doesn't rationalize it, he doesn't argue it, he doesn't debate it, he doesn't pray and fast for 30 days, Levi gets up and he follows Jesus. I love bold obedience. I desire that type of obedience in my own life. I know that I don't always walk in that. I want you to see something here. Following Jesus means leaving your old ways behind. Jesus says, follow me, and Levi gets up and he follows Jesus. But in choosing to follow Jesus, he's choosing to leave a lot behind. He's leaving behind his profession. He's leaving behind his means of security. He's leaving behind his identity. He's leaving behind his entire group of friends, his social circle. He's leaving behind his past, the way he views himself, and he's choosing to move forward towards Jesus. Around here at City Church, we talk a lot about God's blessings, and there's a reason for it. I believe god wants to bless us. I believe that god wants to heal us I believe god wants to provide for us. I believe god wants you to walk in victory I believe god wants you to have redemption. I believe he wants you to experience restoration I believe god wants to cleanse you and forgive you and there are so many incredible benefits of following jesus but If we're not careful We will exalt the benefits And ignore the costs You know that following Jesus will cost you something It cost Matthew a lot In fact, it cost him everything now, please understand I'm not saying that salvation will cost you everything Salvation is free and there is nothing you could ever do to earn it. There is nothing you could ever do to deserve it There is nothing you could ever do to gain it for yourself Salvation is 100% a free gift Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 says that it is by grace You have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves It is the free gift of god not by works so that no man can boast Praise God that it is a free gift for me to experience salvation despite my sin, despite my depravity, despite everything that is messed up in me, that Jesus loved me enough to die for me and extend salvation to me freely. Salvation is free. Oh, but discipleship. Discipleship, my friend, will cost you everything. And I fear sometimes... That I, as your pastor, could be in danger by focusing on the blessings and the great things and the benefits that come from following Jesus of accidentally watering down the truth. And the truth is, following Jesus is expensive. It cost Matthew everything he had. It cost him everything he was. But the beautiful truth is, he gained so much more than he lost. Discipleship may be expensive, but it is always worth it You always gain more than you lose you always receive more than you give God will never ever be outgiven in any f- shape or fashion He will always give you more than he asks for but discipleship will cost you everything It cost matthew from the very beginning <laughs> He left behind his profession his tax collector's booth. He abandoned his very lifestyle. He forsook his identity. We must count the cost of being disciple of Jesus. We must be aware of what it means to follow him. And after Matthew left all this and gave all this up, I love this next part. You know what he did? He invited Jesus over for dinner. Praise God. Jesus over for dinner, how awesome would that be to have Jesus over for dinner? What would you cook if you had Jesus over for dinner? what <laughs> Steve knows he got a quick answer. I'm about to throw some ribs down bro uh praise God for some pig. uh what would you do I, I this is just such an amazing question to me as somebody who enjoys hosting and having people over what would we try like would we try something new would we Like, just let Jesus, like, here's a loaf of bread. Just do something awesome with it, Jesus. Just speak to it. I don't know. Like, that's an incredible, mind-blowing question to me. It's questions like these that make sermon preparation take way longer than it should because I start to wrestle with things that are not even important. But I I just wonder, what would you do if you had Jesus over for dinner? But verse 15 says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, Many tax collectors, and I love the NIV with this, it puts sinners in quotation marks. I don't know how the Greek punctuation worked, but I'm sure there was not quotation marks around that. Many tax collectors, and quote, sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. You may already know this, but, but some of us... Probably do not. In this day and age, a tax collector was like the lowest of the lowest professions. And it wasn't the lowest of the lowest because it didn't pay well. In fact, it paid very well. Uh, It was the lowest of the low because, in order to be a tax collector, you basically had to be a liar and a cheater. Uh, Or maybe you didn't have to be, but that's what they chose to do. Essentially, the way it worked is the Roman Empire was uh, acquiring all these different lands, and they were controlling Israel at this time. And so they would come into whatever land they had acquired, and they would choose natives, they would choose locals, and say, we want you to collect taxes for us. And here's the percentage that you need to collect, and anything you collect over that, you get to keep. So take as much as you want. There were no rules, there was no accountability, there was no one checking in on these tax collectors. And so these tax collectors would begin to cheat terribly. They were the wealthiest people, and everyone else hated them. But they weren't just hated because they were cheaters. They weren't just hated because they were thieves. They weren't just hated because they were taking from you. The greatest reason why they were hated is they were viewed as traitors. You see, the Israelites, the Jews, hated their Roman overseers. They hated their oppressors. And they viewed the tax collectors, these other Jews, who worked for the Roman government, as absolute traitors. They thought it was treason that you would betray your people and work for the enemy. And so Levi was not Mr. Popularity. Jesus did not select Levi because he had tons of influence. Jesus did not select Matthew because he knew if I can just get Matthew, he's bringing the whole football team with him. He was not the person that you would look at and see, hey, I want you on my team. He was despised. He was hated. He was a liar and a cheater. And not only him, but those who were around him. And so all these tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners are having dinner with Jesus. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the quote sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does Jesus eat with those people? You got those people in your life? Have you ever had those people that you just Felt There was a separation between you and them That there was something about them that was different that was worth worse that was inherently wrong The tax collectors were those people to the pharisees and you see there's an important distinction for us to make here There is a difference between religion and relationship These pharisees these teachers of the law. They were really good at religion They were the first kid picked on the religion team at school. They had religion down. They excelled at religion, but they did not understand relationship. They didn't understand the heart of God. They didn't understand who the Messiah truly was. And so religion does two things to you. Religion puffs up. It makes you proud. It makes you think you're better than someone. And then religion pushes away. Religion Divides and jesus did not come to lead a religion. Jesus came to have a relationship with you He came to lower us to humble us to take away that pride in ourselves and to connect us to unite us To take away the things that would separate us and divide So they ask why does jesus eat with those people? Don't you know who they are? Rabbi, don't you know what matthew does? Teacher I thought you were supposed to be better than that. How could you associate with people like this? Why would you hang out with those people? Why would you eat with them? And I love Jesus' response so incredibly much in verse 17. This is one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. It's one of the things that, that to me speaks the loudest about the character and the nature of my God. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy, who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Oh, I love that verse. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't come for the healthy? Aren't you glad he came for the sick, for you and for me, in our disease and our sin and our junk and our filth? Jesus came for you, and he came for me. And I'm so glad. And the irony here is that when Jesus made this statement, this was not a statement of exclusion. This was the ultimate statement of inclusion because what Jesus was saying to them is I came for the sick, for the unhealthy, for those that need a doctor, which is all of you. All of you are unwell. All of you have issues and junk and sin in your life. But the Pharisees in their religion, in their pride, they did not perceive it that way. They heard Jesus say, I came for them and not for you because I didn't come for the well. I didn't come for the healthy. And they perceived themselves as well and healthy. And so they received this as a statement of exclusion, as a statement of division, when it was actually the greatest statement of inclusion there could ever be. Because Jesus came for us all. came for every sick, little, messed up one of us. Amen. Praise God. He didn't call the righteous, but the sinners. Whether you struggle today with religion or you st- struggle with unrighteousness. Whether you wrestle this morning with impurity. Or your battle is with pride. I want you to know. Jesus came for you. and He came to make you well. He came with the medicine. He came with the prescription. He knows exactly what it takes. And you only need to take the pill once to wipe it clean. <laughs> Jesus will cleanse you and heal you of whatever it is. Praise God. Here's what we can learn this morning from Jesus's appetite, that Jesus had the appetite to eat with sinners, that Jesus had the appetite to sit down with the lowest of the low of his culture, of his day and age. I want us to see three things from this passage today. I had to look at my fingers and make sure I had three up. That's not my step up I am this morning. I was like, is that really three? Did I just flash four? Wow. Praise God. In my weakness, he is made strong, right? All right, number one, first thing that we can see from the appetite of Christ today is that Jesus is the essence of good, but Jesus is not too good for you. Praise God. I'm going to get somebody fired up. Jesus is the essence of good. He is the definition of good. God is good, and Jesus is the son of God. And yet, even though he is the essence of good, he is never, ever too good for you. Every once in a while, I'll run into somebody who just thinks that they're not good enough for God. They'll say things like, if you only knew the things that I've done, if you only knew the things that I've been a part of. Sometimes, sadly, it'll be with an elderly person, and they'll say something like, it's just it's too late for me. I missed my chance. It's a heartbreaking statement to make. Sometimes people say stuff like, I just got to get myself cleaned up, and then I'll come to Jesus. I just got to get my stuff together, and then I'll come to church. I just got to get myself right, and then I can be a part of all that God stuff. Maybe you've heard someone say something like that yourself. These statements break my heart because this true story of Jesus, in fact, the entire story of Jesus is God's message that he is absolutely good, but he is never too good for you. From the very beginning, Jesus Christ, Lord of the universe, creator of it all, was born in a stable, not in a mansion, not in a palace. He was born in the most humble place. God, the father, so proud of his son, proud of the arrival of the plan of redemption, sends an Network of angels from heaven to proclaim the arrival and rather showing up to the wisest or the smartest or the richest or the greatest or the most respected. They go out to a field to the shepherds, the least paying profession in Israel, the lowest of the low. And these are not just shepherds. These are the night shift shepherds. These are the graveyard shepherds. These are the guys who can't get any other job. And he appears to them and says, I want you to be the first to know the Messiah has come. In a culture where women were absolutely disrespected and completely disregarded and ignored, Jesus Christ, Lord of the universe, dies for our sins and rises again. And the first person he appears to, the first person he reveals himself to is a woman. Everything Jesus did, everything he was about was to tell us, I don't care how low you are. I don't care how poor you are. I don't care how ignored you are. I don't care how deprived you are. I don't care how sinful you are. I came for you. Man, that gets me fired up that he came for me and he came for you. And Jesus is the essence of good, but he will never, ever be too good for you. He'll never be too good for where you're at. He'll never be too good for what you're going through. You don't have to be good enough for Jesus. You just got to accept that he is more than enough for whatever it is that you need. Now, if Jesus was not too good for people, Jesus is not too good for people, then we as individuals, we as a church, we as the body of Christ, must choose to never be too good for people either. There was a season in our church's history where there was a lesbian couple who sat here on the front row, very close to where Steve and Tammy are sitting right now, and they're no longer attending here. I don't know where they're at with God right now, and we are never going to water down the truth. We are never going to tolerate sin or embrace sin, but we are absolutely going to tolerate and embrace sinners because every single one of us is. And I don't care what kind of junk somebody comes in with. I don't care what kind of baggage. I don't care what they've been into. I don't care what they're addicted to. We better determine as the people of God, we're not going to be too good for anybody. Because Jesus was not. Jesus met the sinners right where they were at. And I'm so grateful that he did. My prayer is not that we would be a church without problems. I never want to pray that. See, because a church without problems is a church without purpose. It's a church that isn't reaching. It's a church that isn't expanding. It's a church that isn't loving. We better always have problems in here. And you're like, man, you care for what you wish for, dude. And you're probably right. I may regret those words. But, man, we better always have problems. We better always have some stuff that we're working through. We better always have some people who are getting set free, who are moving forward out of darkness and into light. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4 says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. What's that saying? You want to get some work done? You want to accomplish something? There's going to be some byproduct. (laughs) Right? There's going to be some stank. There's going to be some nasty. There's going to be some cleanup that has to be done. That's the picture of the church. Not that we have the power to clean anything up, but we are connected to the power that can clean everything up. Because we have him, we better be constantly reaching some new oxen. We better be constantly producing something, getting some work done, and having some byproducts of some sinful past that creep their way into our church. If we go out in the parking lot and there's a cigarette butt there, praise God. Man, if there's a beer bottle there, praise God. If there's some remnants of some sinful past. Now, I'm not saying that we just tolerate everything and that we just embrace everything and it's like, hey, man, pass around the weed before church, Plus plus, give. That's not what I'm saying. Make sure you don't misquote me today. All right? What I'm saying is there's got to be an acceptance of sinners right where they're at. That we would never be too good for anyone. I could preach this whole point as a whole sermon. I've got to keep moving. I'm sorry. Next thing we can learn from Jesus' appetite in Mark chapter 2 is this. Is that sinners love to be around Jesus. Doesn't that kind of blow your mind? The only person who ever lived without sin, the only person who ever had no sin in him was a magnet for the most sinful, most wretched, most despicable people of his day. They loved to be around Jesus. Verse 15 in Mark chapter 2 said, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. It wasn't just many who ate with him because, man, Jesus can make a good meal. There were many who followed him. Sinners were magnetized by him. They were drawn to him. They wanted to be around him. It almost seemed like the greater of a sinner that they were, the more they wanted to spend time with Jesus. Why did they like being around him so much? What was it about Jesus that was so attractive to the greatest sinners of his day? Here's what I think. I think deep down inside, all of us are made in the image of God. All of us have a natural conscience placed inside of us that knows right from wrong. And I think people who are in the greatest sin have the greatest hunger to get out of it. And Jesus recognized their hunger. He saw it in them, and rather than condemning them for their faults, he spoke to their potential. Jesus knew what they had. He knew every jacked-up thing about them. He knew every mistake they ever made. But instead of focusing on their junk or on their filth, Jesus spoke to the potential that they had. He believed they could be better, not on their own, but through the power of the Holy Spirit who he was going to send. So he spoke to the potential inside of them. He spoke to the opportunity that they have to be better. In short, I believe Jesus Added value to their lives, and that was why the sinners liked to be around Jesus so much. So, whose life are you adding value to right now? What sinner in your world, in your neighborhood, in your family, who are you adding value to? And I'm asking myself the same question: whose life is better because you're in it? Who are we adding value to as a church? We're just getting started being intentional about adding value to our community, about adding value to the lost, the broken, the hurting, and all of Branch. We're trying to be very intentional about adding some value to our community. And this week, we're doing a vacation Bible school and opening our doors. Next week, July 27th through 29th, we're doing a thing called Mission OB, and we're going to spend two and a half days out in the community doing all kinds of mission projects. 10 days ago, 4th of July, 11 days ago, 4th of July, we had an event here in our parking lot where we watched the fireworks, and then after the fireworks were over, we went up into the park to help clean up, and I was stricken with gout, and I was on crutches, and I couldn't help out, and it was the worst moment of my life. I was so frustrated, but it was amazing because as you guys were moving up into the park, I was just blown away as the masses, literally thousands of people are doing everything they can to get out of the park. Here's this little band of warriors going right up into the midst of the chaos, saying, we want to be right there in the midst of the filth, in the midst of the junk, in the midst of the opportunity to be a blessing. And I was so grateful for our church. I was so proud of our church that day, this week. I was in the, the parks department office, which actually happens to be next door to us right now as they're fixing some things across the street. And I went in there to to sign up for something to reserve uh, an amphitheater for July 27th. We're going to have an outdoor service in the park and love on some people. It's going to be very fun. And as I'm there and I'm, I'm at the receptionist desk, Will, who's the director of the parks department for Olive Branch, he, he saw me and he goes, hey, ain't you from next door? And I said, yes. Uh he said, man, and these were his exact words. He said, I want your people to know that our staff was ecstatic. That was the exact word, was ecstatic that they showed up to help. He said they were thrilled that they got to go home and get that extra time on the holiday with their family because your people showed up to help clean up. You guys should give yourselves a hand for that. I'm proud of our church. I'm proud of everyone who participated, who added some value to our community. That wasn't the only thing that happened. Wednesday, I opened up an email, and I was shocked by what I found. It said this, and it'll be on the screen. said, I just wanted to thank you for assisting with the cleanup after the 4th of July event. I noticed many of your group headed toward the track area with trash bags in hand. You not only provided a service, but you also provided a great example for all to follow. Thanks again, Sam. Sam Reichard, mayor of Olive Branch. Proud of City Church. How cool is that? Adding some value to our community. here's the thing, guys. It ain't for the glory of City Church of Olive Branch. We exist. We work. We serve for a much higher name than City Church, for the name of Jesus. And I love seeing our people adding some value to the community. I'm not saying Mayor Reichard or, or Will, the director of the Parks Department, are sinners. That's not what I'm trying to say. But they are representative of the world. They are representative of our community. They are representative of those outside the bubble of our church. And Jesus got outside the bubble. And I'm so glad that our church is getting outside the bubble, is getting out and making an impact and serving and making a difference. We need to be around the world, rubbing shoulders with the world. The Bible famously says that we're to be in but not of the world. How do we do that? Last thing I want us to see as we wrap up our message today, how did Jesus be in the world around sinners constantly, around tax collectors, around prostitutes, around the lowest of the low? How was he in the world, but never, ever of the world? This is the best way I've ever heard it phrased. Jesus was a thermostat. He was not a thermometer. Jesus was a thermostat. He was not a thermometer. A thermostat, as you probably know, teenagers, you may not understand all this yet. You probably do. I don't think I did when I was a teenager. I was a little slow. Uh, But a thermostat... Controls the temperature if you go to that little box right there and please don't do this people mess with our thermostats all the time And get our temperatures all out of whack If it's ever too hot or too cold in here It's because somebody went over there and messed with that because it's set right every morning Uh, But if you were to go mess with that right now, you could adjust the temperature and right now It's supposed to be set at 67 degrees on air conditioning praise God for air conditioning Uh, But if you went and adjusted the temperature on that thermostat, you could take it up Or you could take it down and just by touching a few buttons on that thing you would affect the temperature in the entire room. The room is controlled by the thermostat. A thermometer, on the other hand, is simply a reflection of the environment around it. A thermometer registers the temperature. It tells you what the temperature is. It tells you what is the room like right now. And I believe far too many Christians are thermometers. I believe far too many of God's followers are, are just simply reflections of the world around them when they've God has called us to be like Jesus. He's called us to be a thermostat. He's called us to control the temperature. And if you get in the world and you become more like the world, it means you're a little too much of a thermometer. It means you probably need to remove yourself from that situation for a while. You may need to end some friendships. I'm not telling you just go spend time with every sinner who's into everything that's going to pull you down. because That's not God's plan for your life. God wants us to be better than that. But God wants to get you to a place where he can send you back into the world and you can be protected from it. You're not going to be affected by it. You're not going to become like those in the world. But you're going to love them. You're going to bless them. You're going to rub shoulders with them. You're going to impact them. And that's what Jesus did. He controlled the temperature. But how do you do it? How can you control the temperature? That thermostat or any other thermostat, the only way they can control the temperature is because they're connected to the power source. There's some little wires that run out behind that thing off to the air conditioning unit and off to the heating unit, to the central heating and air. And if it wasn't for those wires, they'd have no ability to control the temperature. And if you're here today and you're more of a thermometer than a thermostat, and when you get around the things of the world and the people of the world, it starts to drag you down. It starts to affect the way you think. It starts to affect the decisions that you make. I want to encourage you today with everything that I am that you need to connect to the power source. You need to spend some time with the Father. You know, Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He was God himself. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And despite all that, time after time, we see Jesus rise up early before the sun got up and went out to spend some time with his Father. We see Jesus separate from the multitudes, separate from the chaos, separate even from the opportunity to minister because he knew if he wasn't connected to the power source, eventually he was going to run dry and to become a thermometer and not a thermostat. God's got an incredible plan to use you in whatever world he's placed you in, in whatever setting he has you in, in your workplace, in your community, in your family. He may have a calling on your life to take you somewhere, to do something amazing for his glory, but you'll never accomplish it all if you're not connected to the power source. God wants us to be in the world. But not of the world and far too many times we make one mistake or the other We either separate ourselves from the world and we go like monk style and i'm not going to be around anything I'm, not going to hear anything Nothing's going to cause me to slip or stumble and praise god that they value holiness that much But that's only step one We need to get holy and then we need to get back around the unholy to bring them to the one who is truly holy What can we learn from the appetite of jesus? Jesus ate with sinners. He ate with those who were messed up, with those who were flawed, with those who were full of sin. And he encouraged them. He loved them. And he changed them. And now he's asked you to be his disciple. To imitate him, to do the things that he did. And he's given you access to the same power source that he did, the power of the Holy Spirit, to walk out everything he asked us to do. Let's do it. Man. Let's be everything Jesus has called us to be in our lives this week, at your place of employment this week, in your home this week. Let's choose. I'm going to walk in the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to be a thermostat. I'm going to change the temperature and set the temperature around me, the climate around me, to be like Jesus. Let's be disciples. Anybody up for being a disciple? Let's do this father. God, I thank you for disciples in this room Lord, I thank you for men and women who have answered the call to be like jesus And I just pray right now through the power of the holy ghost lord god I pray that you would fill us that you would empower us lord god I pray if there's anybody in the room right now who's too much of a thermometer Who's too much of a reflection of the world around them lord? I pray that you would convict them of sin that you would break the sin off of them That you would empower them to get that stuff out of their system But, Lord, I pray that you would show them that you've got a better plan. And as they connect to the power source, that you're going to use them for something great. Lord, I thank you that Jesus was loved by sinners, that sinners love to be around you. Lord, I pray that we would add value to our community, to our world, to those around us, just as Jesus did. That everywhere we go, that people would want to be around us because you are in our lives, because you are speaking through us. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for everything that you're doing in our life. God, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you that you're the essence of good. Jesus, you are the essence of good, but you are never too good for us. Lord, I thank you that you are not too good for anyone in this room. Lord, if there's anyone who's here today who's far from you, if there's anyone who's here today who's listening to the voice of the enemy that would say, you're not good enough, but you can't receive Jesus because you did this, you can't follow Jesus because you did that, you can't be a disciple because you're doing this, Lord, I pray that you would show them that you are never too good for them, but you are the essence of good, and that you would reach out to them right now in Jesus' name. Every head bowed, every eye closed. As we wrap up today, I want to ask you this simple question. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a follower? Are you an imitator of the Lord and Savior of the world? And if you're not, I want to give you an opportunity to take a step, to declare yourself a disciple today, to be like Matthew and boldly obey as the voice of God speaks to you and says, follow me. You may not know everything that means. You may not know everywhere you're going to go, but that's okay. Matthew didn't know either, but he boldly obeyed anyway. I want to extend to you that same offer, to boldly obey the voice of God. And declare yourself a disciple and a follower of Jesus. If that's you with no one looking around, if you just slip up your hand, I want to pray with you today. If you want to enter into discipleship, if you want to make him your Lord and your Savior, praise God.